The Right Hook Podcast. With the Mitsubishi Commercial Range, Pajero Executive, Pajero Commercial, Outlander Business and new L200. All with a leading five-year commercial warranty. MitsubishiMotors.ie Well, the week on The Right Hook here at Newstalk is coming to an end with me, George Hook. And we've got some of the outstanding items of today's show that you can listen to just in case you miss them. I'm joined now by Talk Media News in Washington, D.C. Victoria Jones is the chief White House reporter. She joins me because, of course, five police officers shot by sniper fire in Dallas. Victoria, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. This is the great curse of America, the whole gun culture. Like, whilst obviously we're appalled by five police officers, it's in the same week that two black men were shot. Uh, yes, two black men were shot by uh, police officers, one a motorist during what seems to be a routine traffic stop, and one a, a man who sold uh, CDs outside a convenience store. Video, of course, existing of both of those shootings, which went viral. And, uh, you know, you don't know what plays into anything, but the the suspect who was killed, the sniper who was killed in a in a parking garage, was killed by an explosive delivered by a robot and he apparently told police that he was upset about Black Lives Matter. He was upset about the recent police shootings, according to Chief Brown. He said he was upset at white people, and he stated he wanted to kill white people, especially white officers. But it's understandable. I mean, I can't remember the Los Angeles riots, but remember they started because because there was video evidence again of the police beating up a suspect. Wasn't that right? There was evidence of the police beating up a suspect. That's right. And uh, But everybody is now at this point really being very careful in, in the political world to try to keep calm on this. I mean, President Obama issued a statement very early this morning from Warsaw, where he's there for a NATO summit. Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump have both called off political events today and uh, both issued uh, restrained statements, which isn't surprising from Clinton, but a restrained statement is a, is a less usual from Trump. And even the, on the House floor, Speaker Paul Ryan, Minority Leader Nancy Pelosi, they've been calling for unity and calm. So there's, uh, and, of course, the Texas politicians doing the same. There is very much awareness that this is a powder keg. It's a powder keg because if you're black, you're more likely uh, not just to get shot, but you're more likely to get harassed or treated differently by a policeman in America. That's a fact of life. That is a fact of life. And uh, that, of course, is why there were people peacefully protesting last night around the country and how these uh, snipers knew the route. They seem to have had some knowledge of the route and to have had some knowledge of where the police were going to be um, is, is interesting. There are three others in custody. We don't know who they are. Micah Johnson, I believe, is the name of the man who was killed by the robotic bomb. All right. Um, but what we are likely to see, if history has anything to do with this, 
is the policemen are probably going to be acquitted, those who shot the black man, which further inflames um, uh, feelings amongst the black community in America. Well, it does. And uh, I don't know whether they will be or whether they won't be. There, there is a Justice Department investigation into the Louisiana shooting. That was the first shooting this week. The Minnesota shooting, uh, I'm, there are calls for a Justice Department investigation. But the Justice Department investigation is a civil rights investigation. And it's a very high bar to prove that the officer intended to violate somebody's civil rights and didn't just make a mistake. So again, if it doesn't prove that, there, there will be discontent. All right. Thank you so much, Victoria Jones of Talk Media News. Now, Bob Bazanka is professor of history at the University of Houston, and he joins me. Bob, welcome to the program. Hi, George. Good to talk to you. Like you and I, you're a long-time Houstonian. I've spent a lot of time there. Like Texas, I I never sort of got upset at other car drivers when I was in Houston for fear that somebody might shoot me. Texans, first of all, do tend to reach for their guns first. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, uh, and it's probably much worse than when you were here. We now have open carry laws, so you're allowed to carry guns openly on campuses and things like that. So it's it's, it's difficult. <laughs> but uh, I mean, when uh, something like this happens, you're, you're a professor of history, and I, I'd like you to look at the historical aspects of this. I'm not sure how long it is now since Gettysburg, um, and 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 how long it is since the Civil War and Lincoln's presidency and all that. But we we tended to think that police versus black people kind of ended with Martin Luther King in Montgomery and Alabama and all this sort of thing. But it seems not so. This is more really than a southern problem for America. Yeah, and and people in the black community have have been making you know note of this for a long time. And uh, the Guardian and Washington Post have actually started keeping databases of police shootings, and there are already five hundred this year of police shooting people. And it's you know way disproportionately black young black men. Um, and like you pointed out, they're harassed, they're stopped. You know, these one of the guys in what was it, Minnesota was stopped for a headlight being out, and he was killed. You know, for a headlight being out, where you and I would never get stopped for that. Um, so it's it's a powder keg, and, and there's just this anger and resentment, uh, you know, fairly clearly. But, Bob, if you look at your city of Houston, when, when I coached rugby there in black communities, um, the, the family, it's incre- invariably a matriarchal society. So what you have is you have a grandmother, a mother, and then you have a daughter who's probably pregnant as well. And there are no men between the ages of 25 and 50 in those communities. There is also a, a monumental lack of black leadership, is there not? Yeah, I mean, I think um, African-Americans who don't have like who don't even have a high school degree are, are staggering. Like two thirds are at some point likely to go through the prison system or the, the justice, the court system. So you have this kind of incarceration, this mass incarceration of poor people and especially poor blacks. And so it really just messes up the entire community. It's not just that one individual is going to jail, but families and communities are all kind of part of this. And it, it creates a, you know, kind of a dependency of poverty and, and, you know, at the end of the day, I mean, this is, you know, America doesn't really address class issues. And so we get stuff like this where, um, 
the black community is is you know kind of beset upon by uh, police forces both north and south. But the black community in America really has a preponderance of all the problems. There are more black people in jail, as you point out. There are more black people executed. Um, but then there are more fat black people. There are more single parent black families. Yeah. There there are more people on welfare. You you can go through almost every statistic in America and and the negative ones and black isn't number one yeah there's clearly a systemic problem that that's actually as you point out centuries old from the civil you know before the civil war that's not addressed and so you know they just kind of keep perpetuating and then you know in the past year things have been really heated you know trump's rhetoric although he was very uh circumspect today he actually in his statement he actually talked about the police killings you know but uh you have these, you know, kind of these systemic problems of, of poverty and, and, like you said, obesity, health concerns. And then you have this heated rhetoric, like at the Trump rallies where they're beating up black people. And, you know, I think it's just like you said, it's a powder keg. And, and inevitably something's going to happen. And but, it did but, in Dallas. Yeah, but you see, Obama, a black president, although I remember being hugely emotional at, at the, the inauguration of a black president, that, having a black president or a black female as secretary for state or whatever it happens to be, they are such a tiny minority of the black community yep. that they almost look like alien beings, I would think to the ordinary black person in america yeah yeah i mean obama is at a different level than all all of us right white and black and and it is difficult to kind of you know you have a black president but then you look at your life and it really hasn't changed and so yeah there's there's a real disconnection there a real distance um from the reality of so how do we i shouldn't say we but i mean how does america change this i mean uh, i mean when was when was the civil war what sort of year was the civil war well, it, it ended in, you know, 1865, 150-some okay. years ago. So it's been, yeah. been a while. Yeah. And, and, and uh, so how are they going to change us? Uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's a great question, right? Um, I mean, on, on a very specific level, police training has to change. They have to, you know, stop, yeah. you know, doing it the way they do. And, and, you know, they can get away with it. That's the thing. As you pointed out, you know, it's rarely are they even, you know, uh, uh, charged and they're always acquitted and, you know, so um, that has to change. But on a larger level, I mean, I think that, you know, there are just all these, these major issues of, you know, people who are more falling and sinking further and further into debt, uh, you know, not having good jobs, good paying jobs, and, and uh, they lash out, you know, um, and they get angry at, at blacks or at immigrants in Texas. You know, a lot of people get angry at Mexicans, and Trump's talking about building a wall, which just, yeah. you know, gets people even more, you know, excited. All right. Um, and uh, it's tough. Okay. Thank you so much for joining me, Professor of History at the University of Houston, uh, Bob Bazanko. George, are you trying to say that all black people in jail are innocent, uh, says the texter? No, I'm not. But what I'm saying is I don't understand why the vast majority of people in jail are black um, when they only are 12% of the total American population. Try and work that one out. We're off to Washington, D.C., to Michael Graham. Michael, welcome to the program. We are deeply worried about more guns in America, but more importantly, uh, the guns used by your policemen, even though seven brave men are dead and six uh, hurt. 
Yeah, uh, it's terrible. Well, the the guns used by the policemen obviously aren't the problem because guns in and of themselves aren't a problem. They're just a tool. It's the uh, people who wield them are the problem. And uh, this uh, horrific assassination, that's what it was, an assassination of police officers by a guy who said, I want to kill police. I want to kill white police. I'm angry at the way policing is done in the United States. And so this was a pure political assassination I'll, I mean, you, similar to the uh, the horrific story in South Carolina where the wannabe Klanman went to the black church. It's it's horrifying, and it brings together a lot of difficult trends. And what frustrates me, obviously, the horror of the lost lives, whether the lives were, are lost are the Air Force veteran in Atlanta, Georgia, 18 months ago, who was not just unarmed but naked when he was shot and killed by a police officer, uh, or whether it's the, uh, the, the story of this, the assassinations is I don't understand why it's so hard to hold two ideas in your head at the same time. No. I did number one, let me finish. I did number one being there is a problem with policing in the United States when it comes to black people, no doubt about it. It is harder to be black in America than it is to be white. You are disproportionately likely to be pulled over, confronted with violence, have violence used upon you if you're black than white. That is true, but it is also true that a small group of Americans, black males between 15 and 30, even though they make up about 5% of the population, commit about 50% of the murders. That's also true. And you don't have to abandon the truth of either side to move forward on this problem. Okay, but I accept all that, right? Because I, 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 I ran rugby camps in, in the black areas of Houston and Pittsburgh and, and, and places, and I know. But So I'm not speaking like from 5,000 miles distance. I, I was there. I worked with those black kids. I saw it. But here's the question. Why are American police officers trigger happy, which I think you will agree they are. I don't agree that they are as a group. And this is what, once again, is so frustrating. Uh, what were the cops doing last night when these shots rang out? They were guarding people holding a I'm angry with the police protest. It was a Black Lives Matter. We're angry at how the policing is going on. And there are photos, selfies taken by the cops and by some of the people in the crowd before the shooting began showing the cops, yeah, we're right here. There are plenty of police officers who see a problem. There are plenty of police officers who use deference. They're in situations where it could get out of hand and they hold back their pride and let some angry, frustrated teenager do what stupid, angry, frustrated te teenagers of all races, creeds, and colors do. That happens most of all the right, time. All right, but Michael, hold a while. How many times have you been pulled over by a cop in America? Uh, many, but I've never had an incident with a cop, no matter how much of a joke. Well, I've been pulled over a lot of times, uh, be, be, you know, because... Oh, when, me too. I'm, I'm a lead foot. I, I get pulled over. It's yeah. not the same. It is but not I have never had a reasonable experience with an American cop. I mean, when you're sitting there and this guy comes up, first of all, he adjusts his sunglasses. Then he adjusts his his twin pearl-handled Colt 45s <laughs> on his hip. And they roll, you roll down the window and he says, put your hands on the steering wheel. And, you know, you attempt to make a reasonable conversation with this guy. And there is no reasonable conversation with this guy. And you're terrified. I am terrified... I was terrified every single time they pulled me over. Sure. And, and I, listen, I understand. I mean, ter you're terrified because you're a half a girl. So that's a separate issue. But look, I, I agree that it's embarrassing that all American citizens, particularly men, 
feel the need to do what I do whenever I'm pulled, which is place your hands on the steering wheel. Don't move until the officer makes a specific request. When I reach for my glove box where, my, where I keep my wallet, I feel the need to say I'm reaching for my glove box. I agree. Yeah. That's all. It is ridiculous because of a strategy of policing that is in place, a strategy of policing that can be fixed. Having said that, George, just within the last 24 hours, there was a police officer killed when he pulled somebody over and the guy you know, whips out a gun. In, in yeah. I mean, I understand that. And when I read about the guy and he was putting his hand in his pocket, right. uh, apparently to look for, pull out his license or whatever. Right. Now, I mean, I would just like you. I never put my hand in my pocket. I never put my hand in my glove compartment. I clutched the steering wheel like a drowning man. <laughs> lest that copper think sure. that I, I was going to do anything. But it was scary. It was always scary. I, I um, understand that. And so what? this is what I want my fellow you know, conservative, uh, fundamentally law, you know, a rule of law people to gather around. We are the ones who need to lead the fight for police reform because on the other side, you have people who are screaming, you know, uh, fry the pigs in bacon, fry them like bacon, you know, shoot the cops. you got these people who want police to have very, you know, ridiculously limited, uh, you know, uh, behavior. They want to, to rein them in from being able to do their basic job. But something's going to have to change. It's going to change. And the effort's going to either be led by people who hate cops or led by people right. like me. Get that it's a tough job, but also understand that these are government employees. Fundamentally, a police officer is basically an armed EPA worker. There's no reason to expect them to be any better or any worse at their job than anyone else who works for the government. All right. A listener says there's a phrase amongst American cops. It's better to be tried by 12 than carried by six. You're, you know? you're right. And the problem in the United States, though, is how rarely police officers get tried. That's another problem that we have is that police officers uh, you know, are involved in an, in, in an incident. They use lethal violence. It's hard to figure out how they did it, okay. but then prosecutors won't bring the case. Or the way the laws are written in the United States are so... Uh, bias towards the police officer. For example, George, in some states, you don't have to show that you had a reasonable fear that someone's going to hurt you. You just have to show that you're afraid. So if you're a cop and you say, I'm scared of whatever, you know, bubble gum and a kid with a finger, that's under the law. The jury has yeah. to let you go. And those are the reforms that the good guys can lead. But right now, they're too busy screaming, you black people commit too much crime. You know, leave the cops alone. The cops are always right. And, okay. Uh, well, happen. I remember I was driving back from the, the uh, Coast Guard Academy in Connecticut back to my home in Providence, Rhode Island, as it then was. And this guy tries to pass me out, and I get uh, teed <laughs> off at him. So for the next couple of miles, at about 80 miles an hour, he and I are sort jousting up the highway because it's about 11 o'clock at night and then of course the old blue and white arrives and he hauls the two of us over right right now we both be doing 80 miles an hour we both have been driving dangerously he looks at me and he sees i'm white he looks at the guy in the other car and sees he's black so he says to me uh, okay be more careful in future off i drive and as i look at my mirror he's reaming a new external orifice for the black guy in the car so i mean that is how american policing works you're wrong that is how some american policing works and saying all cops are bad is just as stupid is saying no cops. No, all cops, cops are racist. 
But no, they are not all. That's idiotic. First of all, a significant percentage of American officers are black. No, they're not. It's a small percentage. So so, look, look, you don't know what you're talking about, but I will say there's a bigger issue here. I was never pulled over by a black cop, ever. I was pulled over by guys in Boy Scout hats in Vermont. The police chief in Dallas is black. Uh, <laughs> okay, the, where this happened, the police chief is back. But George, we have a bigger problem. We have another problem in America. And that is, people f- believe now that the law just doesn't work, and you and you you will never get justice from the justice system. The right hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander seven seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips. MitsubishiMotors.ie it's the Friday right hook with me, George Hook. And Friday wouldn't be the same without Alison Spittle, who brings her, well, I suppose, <laughs> unusual uh, view on the world. Alison, welcome to the programme. Thanks so much for having me, George. Well, not much has happened this week for me, so I thought I would talk about uh, the fact that I, I've kind of changed my sleeping patterns. That's how boring a week it's been. Well, hold on, you've changed your sleeping patterns. This has nothing to do with your love life, has it? No, no, unfortunately not. <laughs> that's the... <that's... laughs> I don't know how you can take that either way. But... <laughs> uh, I always... Uh, I have to say, my love life always affected my sleep patterns. It's also affected your mouth, George, because you speak about it a lot. <laughs> it's <so very laughs> right, Okay. So it's yeah. not your love life. Why are you not sleeping? Because uh, recently I've become very light sensitive. Like I wake up now at half five in the morning. This um, may be news to you, Alison mm-hmm. Spittle. Yeah. But the entire population of the world has precisely <laughs> the same problem. I used to never have that problem, George. No, this is true. I wake yeah. up at 5.30. Really? Yeah, because of the light. Yeah, yeah, yes. it's terrible. And well, it... you can fix this, of course. Yeah, how, how so? Change the curtains. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm renting. I don't... No, what I've, what I've done is I've changed my own eye curtains now because I can't afford to buy curtains. All right, I'll give so you another I've... one. I'll yeah. give you another one. In fact, I'll do it for you. Yeah. It, because when you fly across the Atlantic, mm-hmm. right, in the expensive seats... <laughs> yes. They give you free uh, blindfolds. Well, that I've after getting one of those. Well, I can give you a few pairs from you know my what? previous trips across the Atlantic. I, I genuinely will take a few off you because I have this one and it's going around my head. Uh, like it, it falls off me the whole time. So by about half six, I'm always awake. All right. Okay. So well, the desperate. first thing is, I mean, I don't know why we're having this conversation because I mean, <laughs> like. The, the Icelanders and the Norwegians have this problem all the time because, as you know, mm-hmm. they have like 24 hours darkness for a period. Yeah. And then the summer they have 24 hours of, of light. Of light, so, yeah. Of daylight. So it's actually very difficult for the poor fellas to sleep. Taxi drivers have this problem or shift workers have mm. this problem because they're trying to go to sleep during the day. Right? Well, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm now, just a bit lazy. No, let me try and work something out here. Yeah. Is your sleep pattern disturbance you're waking up early or you're having difficulty going to sleep? Well, because I do comedy, um, I I get full of adrenaline at about 10 o'clock at night. 
So I won't, uh, like my my flatmate's a comedian too, and we watch uh, police documentaries until three o'clock in the morning. That's well, our natural, yeah. like, you know, we watch terrible telly. Well, that is <laughs> absolutely true, because yeah. if I do, well, I don't anymore, but if I did television at night, right, yeah. say say I've been on Late Late Show or DeRay Darcy or whatever, mm. I can't go to sleep then. I'm at home watching television until three in the morning. Adrenaline yeah. is a very natural reaction to the job you do. No, absolutely. And I, 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 but I can fix that as well. Yeah. If you don't go to sleep until three mm-hmm. and you're up at half five, you're existing on two or three hours sleep. I know, because today I, I, I got up at half five and then I went back to sleep. I had to put my eye mask on. And it's terrible. When I was about, when I was about 19, George, I could sleep on, I actually slept on a rolled up piece of carpet. Like, I could do that. I was great at sleeping. Well, I can still do that. I can go to sleep standing up. I can go to sleep on tube trains. Yeah. I can sleep anywhere. Oh, that's great. (laughs) Except in the company of women. I find I cannot (laughs) sleep in the company of women. Why is that? Do you, uh, George, I'm terrible for snoring. I'm desperate for snoring. Yeah, yeah. Well, the lovely Ingrid Mm -hmm. has abandoned me. Right? Yeah. Now, not abandon the family home, just the bedroom. Because, like, she spent, you know, forever sleeping in the same room with me honking away, like. Yeah, yeah, I have that problem, Honking too. is terrible. It is terrible. It is. That's, I, I, I'm exactly the same, George. I can't, uh, or if I go to a festival, I can't share a tent with anyone. Now, the way... You can help again. Yeah. I mean, the help I'm giving you is quite extraordinary. <laughs> yeah. And I'm not charging you a bob. Um, if the pillow is too high. Yeah. Is that a problem? You tend to snore. You should try sleeping with the outer pillow. Uh, George, I sleep with four pillows. Oh, well, sure. I mean, That's the issue there. There's the Not, answer. When I was That's at, the answer. When I was in hospital, though, um, I had to be taken out of the shared ward because I was keeping everyone else awake with my snoring. <laughs> so I felt like I had the, I had like a health insurance without no. having to pay for it on the private room. It was great. <laughs> <laughs> I recommend that to anyone. <laughs> if you want your own room and your own telly, snore. <laughs> but it's the pillows. It, it must be the pillows. It has to be the pillows. Sleep without the pillows. See what happens. Okay, I'll give that a go. Now. Yeah. When you come home from the comedy routine, you have two choices. Okay. You go to the off... Well, first of all, you go to the off-license in Super Value. Right? <laughs> well, you can go to a lot of off-licenses. I go to Other the one Super available. Value. Other yeah. are available. I go to Super Value. <laughs> and you buy a large bottle of cork gin. Really? And a large bottle of tonic water. Or the other one, which works brilliantly, yeah. is you buy a bottle of Captain Morgan's rum. Will you remember that? I'll remember that, George. Right? I don't think I've heard of it before. I'll write <laughs> right. it down. And <laughs> beaver uh, ginger ale. Now, the interesting thing about beaver, it is spelled B-E-L-V-O-I-R. You'd sort of say Belvoir, but it's not. It's called beaver. So you buy mm. beaver ginger beer and you have rum and ginger beer. It's, yeah. a, it's a Bermuda drink and it's called Dark and Stormy. Oh, I've had one of those. Yeah. 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 You go to sleep like a rock. I know, but I snore even louder if I drink. It's terrible. But don't mind the snoring. Yeah. What about the hangover the next day, George? But you won't have a hangover. I mean, you have a substantial, like you don't use a little measure now. Okay. I mean, give it a good dollop. You're like Dr. Quinn, medicine woman, except just a recommended (laughs) alcohol to everybody. (laughs) 
<laughs> no wonder the whole town was drunk. <laughs> Come here, I hear you're the new female James Bond. Oh yeah, yeah. I I did a play yesterday. A play? Yeah. Well, it was more of a public script reading of Goldeneye. Do you remember that film? Goldeneye. I didn't like it. Did you not? Wasn't that the one where the fella had an eye in the middle of his chest or something, the bad guy? All I remember, there was a lady that had her legs and she used to squeeze them together around Bond and she'd crush him. That was her big, she was like a nutcracker. She was like a human oh, nutcracker. Oh yeah, she was, was that Grace Jones? No, no, was but she, she, yeah, she was, uh, was. Anyway, yeah. you read from Goldeneye. I did, I played. Can you remember any of it that you could give me a sample? I actually have the script out in the other room. Oh, go out, go get it, go get it. Okay, okay. Do you want to play band? Okay, we'll do it, we'll do it. (laughs) So, Alison's hopping outside now to get the script. She's going to play Pussy Galore or whoever. (laughs) (laughs) You're such a a bold lad. Here, let's see if we can get it... uh... I played M, so I'm going to see if... The, Yo, oh, how's M? Oh, I, was, I was Dame Judy Dench. Oh, right. Oh, would you believe it or after losing that half of the script? I tell you what, <laughs> you, play, you play Bond <laughs> and I'll play Natalia, right? Right. We'll go through here. Oh, is that another part of it there? No, still, I must have lost the whole chunk of it here. Right, so do you want to read out the parts for Bond? Yeah, uh, but I have to have the script in front of me to read it out. I'll give it to you. I'll give it to you now. Okay, so I'm going to... Let's see here. I'll play Natalia, you play Bond. Right. right. I'll bring over the mic here so we can share the script. Oh, yeah, so we're close together. So we're close together, now, that's now, it. Now, this is radio, but people don't realise that <laughs> Alison and I are in close physical contact. Proximity. It's the first time, lads. Let's see. So, right, okay. so you play Bond there, and we're in a scene now where uh, Bond and this lady called... Uh, Natalia. Natalia. We're, we're at gunpoint, right? So I'll play the bad guy as well, right? So this is Alec. It's in the past. And He'll betray you just like everybody else. And then the other bad guy goes, is this true? What's true is that in 48 hours, you and I will have more money than God. And Mr. Bond here will have a small memorial service with only money penny and a few tearful people in attendance. So what's the choice, James? Two targets, time enough only for one shot, the girl or the mission? Killer. She meant nothing to me. See you in hell, James. Bond makes his move. He spins around and shoots Armorov, but Alex sneaks away. Steel shutters descend, blocking the doors and windows. One inch armor plating. This is me, Natalia. I'm fine. Thank you very much. Are you wearing one inch armor plating, Natalia? (laughs) I think so. I think so. (laughs) She'd need to, because everyone gets killed around Bond. She sits at the computer. Bond looks for a way out. Natalia. Boris, yes. What are you doing? Boris is online, backing up his files. If I can spike him, I may be able to find out where they're going. Don't just stand there. Get out of here. Yes, sir. Alec and Xenia fly away in a helicopter. So there we go. (laughs) (laughs) Did you enjoy playing Bond? (laughs) I I actually... um I enjoyed being in close proximity to you (laughs) more than I did playing Bond. But I probably should have finished the names Bond. James Bond. Very good. <laughs> All right, listen. This close proximity stuff is great. We should do it more often. Is this the? We should try it out on your new show. Alison <laughs> and George in close proximity. <laughs> be a great name for the new show. 
Close, close proximity. With George Hook. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> At lunchtime. <laughs> and then every one of your guests has to be really near you. So when you're when you're when you're talking to Pat Rabbit, he'll have to sit on your lap or something like that. It'd be terrible. <laughs> You look horrified, George. Pat Rabbit on my lap. Yeah. I'd prefer Paul Murphy of Anti-Austerity Alliance on my lap. (laughs) Gotta go, Alison. We've totally run out of time. It's the Friday Alison Spittle. Thanks, Alison. Thank you. The Right Hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander 7-seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips. MitsubishiMotors.ie Welcome back. It's the Right Hook with George Hook of a Friday, no less, when James Dempsey joins me. James, of course, uh, is, you'll find him, all his thoughts and streams of consciousness on Newstalk.com. James, welcome to the programme. What have you got to say for yourself? Thanks, George. I'm going to talk to you about the Rio Olympic Games and how it has not been a clear path to them. Well, that's interesting. Um, you realise that, like, the Olympic Games is the thing that turns me on more than anything else in the world. <laughs> it is, really? Oh, word of honour. All the way back to Athens, 1896. <laughs> you remember them, do you? Well, no, but like <laughs> I'd remember all the medalists and all the great yeah. stories. And Well, then I think you will be as concerned as many of the other people in the world because right. I, as you can see here in front of me, I have a very long bullet list of all of <laughs> right. the problems that okay, have been so encountered. Okay, so what's the problems for you? Well, first of all, the most obvious one would be Zika, which is the one on everyone's lips. But actually, Zika is probably the least concerning problem for anyone who's planning on going across the Atlantic to Rio, because based on the statistics of the roughly half a million foreign visitors who will go to Brazil for the Games, only one will contract Zika. It's not as big a concern. Instead, I will talk about how the fact that last month, Rio, uh, Brazil, lost its only accredited doping testing lab. Right. And it still doesn't have accreditation for it. It is hoping that it will get it back by August 5th when the opening ceremony takes place. But as yet, it is not yet clear. Uh, In last month as well, so the official mascot of the Rio Olympics is Juma the Jaguar. And Juma the Jaguar, a very real Jaguar, has been uh, sort of paraded around at various events, mostly involving lighting the torch and that kind of thing. And then last month, Juma got a bit bored of her lot and made a break for freedom and had to be shot dead by the armies. It's not They've lost Juma. <laughs> They've lost Juma. Now, this is the equivalent of Metro Goldwyn Mayer losing their lion <laughs> and, and uh, be, not being able to make movies anymore. Okay. <laughs> All right. So then five days ago, in a, at an official event in the lead up to the opening ceremony, 28 skydivers were trying to uh, form the five Olympic rings in the sky. And unfortunately, two of their parachutes, two of the skydivers, their parachutes became tangled together and they fell to their deaths. Interestingly, if you know a little about parachuting, um, sometimes, of course, the reason you have two parachutes is sometimes the parachute doesn't open. Of course, yes. Right? And you just, you know, head straight to the ground. That's called a Roman candle. Do you have any idea why or will I hastily move on? No, I don't know, but it's called a Roman candle, yeah. <laughs> All right. So then in April of this year, they have obviously built lots of amenities across the city of yeah. Rio in order to cater for the games and promote the yeah. bid, etc. One of the things they built was a new cycle path that had been 
dubbed by Rio's mayor, whose name is Eduardo Paez, I'm going to pronounce it, as the most beautiful cycle path in the world. He got, no doubt, help from Alderman Cuff at Dublin City Council on building cycle lanes. Well, he should... Or even Cork City Council, who built the worst cycle lane in history. I, I'd say he didn't get help from the Dublin City Council <laughs> as a large wave hit the uh, cycle path it collapsed, killing two cyclists and injuring a third. And since then, he's come out and said it is unpardonable, was the word he used. But also the construction firm, they're, they're blaming shoddy construction. The construction firm will not uh, speak to the press about any other projects in the Olympics that it might have been involved in. So we'll keep our fingers crossed. So we don't crossed. know if the Olympic Village was built we by these no guys no idea either. Right. All right. Okay. It's then, a more. Then last month, uh, Rio was forced to declare a financial disaster in the city so in order that they could be bailed out by almost a billion dollars by the by the Brazilian the central government. government. This meant that they only got the money on June 30th, so they only have 36 days from June 30th. To spend it. To, to fix everything before the game starts. So the biggest problem is they also built a new light rail system in the city, which has pretty much just been abandoned. So in various streets around Rio, it's like a building There's site. There's half a railway. Half a railway is right. Then let's get to the water. Uh, this is really where the, the problem... The water. The water. In the tap. No, in the lagoon. And right. particularly, I mean, one of our medal hopeful, hopefuls would be Annalise Murphy, who did oh, so well yeah. in, in uh, London. The yachtswoman. Exactly. The sailors are really going to have a hard time of it because it, around this time last year, they took water samples from the lagoon and it contained so much disease-causing viruses that it was at 1.7 million times what would qualify as hazardous in this country. <laughs> it also contains... Sorry, why are we laughing I know, about this? It contains so much raw sewage that apparently the stench itself is just overwhelming. Secondly, last month, 90% of the samples contain antibiotic-resistant water or super bacteria, and a German sailor has already been treated for flesh-eating uh, bacteria, MRSA, in Berlin. I tell you, these fle- this flesh-eating thing is no joke. No, no, it isn't. A friend of mine died yeah, of it. Well, yeah. the great film director, Michael Winner, nearly died of it through eating an oyster in Barbados, I yeah. think. And like he said... They were trying to save his life, like, because of this flesh. And there's nothing they can do, just cut the flesh off. And he said they were literally cutting the flesh off and throwing it into the waste bin in the operating theatre. Flesh eating is sort of a misnomer. It's really necrotizing, which just means killing, killing your flesh. It is a terrible thing. It happened to a very good friend of mine. And it it is terrible. What this puts into, like that, the lagoon, the lagoon... It, the sailors should be refusing to go, really, not the golfers. No, when absolutely. You I mean, absolutely, you're right. And it's not just the sailors. I mean, it's also the triathletes who have to swim. They don't swim through this lagoon. They swim through a different body of water. A different lagoon. But that has been found to have 10%. And I would say 1% is too many percents <laughs> when it comes to flesh-eating <laughs> viruses. triathletes? Yes. Holy God. Also, uh, then we ha- come to the problem of crime. So uh, Brazil is going through a bit of a crime wave. And no, Rio... no, it's not going through a crime wave. Brazil, as long <laughs> as I've known Brazil, since I've been old enough to find it on the map, has had a problem with crime. Once... Uh, Palomar was an international tennis umpire, right? And he went down there for some tennis tournament. like, And you literally don't walk out the door of the hotel with a, with a, with a towel to go to the beach because the towel disappears. So, OK. Well, Rio now... has had a 15% increase in murders, okay. a 20 
24% increase in robberies. Uh, right. The biggest problem actually is that because there's a financial state of emergency, they're not paying their policemen who are now picketing the airport with signs that say, welcome to hell. <laughs> you will probably die here or something. Are you, is this... Are you serious about this? Or are I you, promise you, are that you is taking true. me for a bit of a George, ride here? I, I wish, the, I hope this is going to be like London. I remember in the build up to London, there was all this concern that it was, that they were going to balls this up and it was going to be disaster, yeah, disaster. I know, but you knew and it was, it wasn't. It was a fantastic game. Hold on well now. You talk, to be fair, you're talking about the British. You're correct. Like, the British have many weaknesses, but putting on an Olympic Games, I wouldn't class as one. Fair. But you, you have, I, I'm going kind of half stop you here but it is absolute trail of disaster right <laughs> so I want to bring a few positives Do. right go ahead there's only one positive does it involve Brazilian women by any chance correct uh, yeah you saw that coming yeah yeah <laughs> I mean I would happily risk flesh eating vermin I would happily risk gun-toting robbers I would happily risk Zika carrying mosquitoes for Brazilian women. Well, good luck to you. All right, James will be back next week with a hugely positive story about who knows what. It's James Dempsey, Newstalks.com's intrepid reporter. The Right Hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander 7-seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips. MitsubishiMotors.ie Kian seamless transfer to Ireland's greatest Wimbledon supporter Barry Kenny who joins me in the studio to look at the week that was Barry Kenny welcome to the programme thanks George no Federer no Federer very unhappy Mrs Kenny no Rod Labour well no Ken that's Rose that's been gone a little bit a while you know I had to, I've, no, I've missed them greatly but uh, no that's it I mean mind you it was three years ago since I first said that's it that's Federer's last chance of a grand slam but I think that is it today? Have you been? Have you had yeah, strawberries? Yeah, I went uh, for my 30th birthday, which is not today or yesterday. Um, and so that was in the height of hen mania. And I've never been at a sporting event that is exactly as you would imagine. This is your man, be. Henman. Tim Henman, yes. Yeah, off the ball, we're in love with Tim Henman. <laughs> really? Like, yeah, off the ball, it's been about five days talking about why he was knocked out in the first round. But no, he never was. Here's the thing like, Tim Henman was very. Underrated, right? He never made the final. He had the unlucky semi-final against Ivanisevic, all that type of thing. But you know, I mean, this guy was top ten in the world for quite a few years, so he was no doll when he came to tennis. But yeah, but he wasn't in the same class as Roger Taylor or Fred Perry. No, no, absolutely <laughs> not. But nobody British was until Andy Murray came along. Or whatever. Oh, so he's going to win yeah. the thing now, anyway. So that's that. Will Murray win it? Yeah. I, well, I don't actually know how his semi-final is going, but I presume he's he's playing semi-final well. at the moment. Yeah. Against yeah. who? Against against Thomas Burdick. Boring match. Stay listening to George. Burdick? Thomas Burdick. He's good with fish and chips. <laughs> he is. He's also the one, you might remember, that Andy Murray's now wife had a an expletive-laden rant that was caught on camera about him a couple of years ago. Really? Yeah. I missed all that. Something like, flip that, you flip and check flipper. All right. Yeah. I want to ask you a question. Yeah. A young fella laden with drugs, gets on board one of your trains, starts breaking windows with a hammer and everything, and then starts asking people to help him pull the communication cord because the train wasn't stopping at his station and he wanted the train to stop. Is this a theoretical scenario? No! This this young fellow was in court. Oh, right, 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 right. Well, look, it's... 
Um, no, but I mean, yeah. it also like begs the question, you know, that that we tend as uh, law-abiding mm-hmm. citizens, we tend to sit there when things happen. Yeah, but I mean, that's that in a confined space like a train. That's a very intimidating situation. Well, there was another yeah. court case mm-hmm. yesterday where a woman and her partner spat at a lady, called her a mm-hmm. slut, punched her and kicked her, stole her handbag. Uh, the woman had 20-odd previous convictions and uh, doesn't isn't going to spend a day yeah. in jail. Yeah, and, that, and you know, there, there's no deterrent. But I mean, I would have been one of these now that would confront and I used to get myself into a bit of bother like back in the days when the you know people would it doesn't happen so much now but like if you're on the top deck of a bus and people started smoking I'd kind of walk yeah. up and say listen now yeah. can you stop whatever and I have to say as you get older you do get a little bit more cowardly in those situations I, yeah I, I, but the difference between Irish, uh, I don't know why we're doing this, but it struck me, between Irish railways and buses and everything, we don't have transport police like Mm. other countries do. Yeah, I mean, some of the bigger countries, obviously Britain, and actually even if you look at Dallas, um, I think a couple of the officers, one that was killed and one that was injured, are actually part of the 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 uh, the Dart the Dallas Dart uh, Transit Police, um, but we do have obviously we look we work with the Gardaí. We have our own private yeah. security. It is something we've been looking at and discussing with the other operators like Lewis. You know, in terms of the type of security resources that are that are yeah, required. Yeah, I remember I was on tram in Vienna and these two dodgy guys got yeah. on right? right, yeah, and then they were followed by two not so dodgy guys, and of course the two not so dodgy guys were transit police and yeah. plain clothes. Oh, they, and, and they do and plain clothes and they carry weaponry yeah. in, in some of these countries. But anyway, yeah. two fellas just took discretion as better for the valor, yeah. jumped off, mm. and the two boys legged it, but they were followed by yes. the two guys. But you'll often, you'll often find that yeah. it's almost like the, the, the transit police in some countries are so well disguised, you're thinking they're the people that are going <laughs> to cause the trouble. Now, what about this one? Is it right to holiday in a country that has poor human rights uh, Things. Well, if it's if it's wrong, I've done a lot of wrong in recent years or whatever. Um, yeah, no, I, re- I was reading this. Uh, Jackie Jones was in the uh, in the Times earlier this week, basically saying we should all be going to Norway, Sweden, and Finland perpetually for our holidays because yeah. they were uh, the most uh, just and humane and righteous governments, and that by going to countries like and she cited places like Thailand and, and Morocco, uh, not to mention you know the the Kenyas and Tanzanias uh, as places that. You shouldn't be going because essentially you are supporting uh, poor governance and supporting the oppression of have people you, locally. Have you? Well, you see, there's two things about this. Mm. If you don't go, then mm-hmm. you don't affect the despot no. run the place. You affect the poor person who's trying, you know, who's going to sell you yeah. something exactly. on your holidays. If you look look at Egypt at the moment. And, you know, I mean, obviously it's terrorism, but you can say, you know, there's an argument that says it's part of what the Egyptian government has done, has brought some of what has befallen it on, on itself. And I was in Dahab in Egypt, it was near Sharm el-Sheikh, about, about three, four years ago, and they were already almost decimated. So you had people here trying to earn a living. Yeah. Trying to get on, trying well, to provide Tunisia's the family. Like, this like Tunisia is like that now. Like Tunisia is like that now. And if you withdraw that, like you say, the yeah. Egyptian president is still living in grandeur. His yeah. cronies are still yeah. high on the hog. It's the guy and the woman who are trying to feed their family and who then, of course, are left abandoned for the type of people that would cause, 
militant uh, extremism. Have you been to, to, to Thailand? Yes, just yeah. actually, just in December, just gone. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. Have you been to Bangkok? Yes. Now, isn't it very difficult, uh, well, particularly in your case, because you're in a five-star Marriott <laughs> or whatever, me. is it <laughs> not difficult notes, to look out the window? I didn't, I have to say, I didn't find it uh, somewhere particularly poor. I really didn't. I've been did we, you know? no. We've been to Kenya and but Tanzania. But did you before. get out the front door? The yeah, Marriott? no, absolutely. No, we walk about. We don't lock ourselves away in compounds. We. Were out, right. no, I didn't find it. It is difficult to encounter poverty, but I mean, a lot of people listening will donate to the Oxfam's, the Trokers, whatever. How much money do you generate for countries that are poor by holidaying there? And how well, much I countries do a million people yeah. travelling there? And how much good behaviour and good yeah. governance do you generate? I mean, look, I mentioned the countries like Kenya, right? They've got problems in terms of, you know, sustainability of the environment. If the farmer is involved in safari operations that sees that by protecting these animals, yeah. there's money coming onto my plate rather than actually killing them and poaching them then that is actually better for that okay. country and for the long-term sustainability of it as well. Leaving them to their own devices, leaving Zimbabwe oh, to the yeah. Mugabe's of this world. No, I agree with you. Yeah. My guest, of course, Barry Kenny of Erin Rodern, in that was the week that was, as, as we review it, the Blackberry? Yeah, it's... Great jam. It's, it's got... <laughs> the Blackberry, the foam that we oh, all thought... I thought you were talking about the, the jam. The foam that we all thought was the smartphone. That one where they had the QWERTY keyboard the traditional keyboard across it's gone they've killed it have they? they've killed it and Blackberry is not gone as a brand they're still fighting the good fight uh, against the, the Samsung but I haven't seen these were... somebody use a Blackberry yeah. in years oh and I held on to it tight like I was like Charlton Heston with my really? rifle yeah absolutely I was going to say no I'm not going to go over to anything I like the little flip like I, the keyboard I, the all the type of thing the last fella I saw with a Blackberry yeah. I was going to say Dick Roach going to Europe but I don't think it was but it was one of those guys going to Europe and yeah. I met him at the airport and he had a black he still had it, yeah. But actually, Obama, do you remember when Obama took office? Which yeah. is obviously seven and a half years ago. His Blackberry, that was the big controversy at the time, that he wanted to hold on to his Blackberry. So as recently as that, the most powerful man in the world felt that it was an invaluable part of his daily life. But it is, it just wiped out and uh, not the first time the technology just left but, the But behind. it's interesting like that Nokia uh, has gone through a hard time like Nokia were yeah. market leaders well, There's Motorola before them Nokia Motorola of a, of a, yeah, that, I think that was my first mobile phone this, this brick that when I put it in my inside jacket just sent one yeah. shoulder up and the other down and uh, and then Nokia took over of course I think the Taoiseach still has the, the Samsung now is is going gangbusters Samsung, every second yeah. fella every yeah. second taxi driver certainly seems to have a Samsung it seems they're, they're good now of the of the Apple they seem, they seem to be good but it's it's gone and uh, uh, gone the way of well, suppose it's not even a Betamax because Betamax never got a foothold really this thing be the ruled the waves. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. This thing ruled Listen, the waves. Listen, what are you talking about Dublin bus? What happened during the weekend Dublin oh, bus? yeah. They had a rather successful week, you know. You wait, as they said today in the paper, you wait ages, then 22 millionaires turn up at once. It's absolutely oh, fantastic. You mean, oh, you're not talking about Dublin bus. You're talking about the fellas working yeah, on Dublin Fantastic bus. story. Absolutely. Now, of course, you know, all of us in the CIA group are all going, God, it's great. <laughs> Why wasn't it our syndicate, you no, know? No, but so, the problem yeah. I think, yeah. right? There's a problem now with this. There's a problem in this absolutely unqualified happy story. Yes. What is it? 
everybody knows who they are. And they'll be getting letters from mother of 10 in Ballybock for the rest well, of their lives. you can provide consultancy services <laughs> to how the rich fend <laughs> off the beggars, right? No, but uh, <laughs> like if you, that, I think if I ever won mm. a, a big prize of yeah. some description, I'd, I'd never, I wouldn't tell my wife. <laughs> right. You don't think she'd notice the conspicuous would consumption, you, would you know? Would you get your photograph taken if no, you No, I don't think so. I don't That's, think so. Now yeah, you see, yeah, yeah. you're not disagreeing. No, I'd, um, I'd firstly feign an illness and then I would, okay, well, I'm going somewhere warm to recuperate and the next yeah. thing I've got this great opportunity. But you wouldn't tell your wife. No, I would, yeah, yeah. Would yeah. you? I would, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> You're kidding me. Yeah, well, it's kind of a way of buying the silence, really, isn't it? You know? No, I, I wouldn't tell my wife. No. I wouldn't tell anybody. Right. I'd, I'd like, but how would you enjoy it then? Because you're not going to, you know, how would you... I worked it out. I right, okay, actually worked okay. it all out. I had, I built up a whole scenario on what I would do. Yeah. Because what I do, I have to confess now, every now and again, when the thing reaches more than 10 million, right? What, when the, it the, reaches when, double figures. Right, yeah. I buy the, a ticket. Okay. Right? You know it does that every week in the Euro Millions, so you can do that all the time. Okay, but right. I don't know. I do the, the, the Irish lot. one. Yeah. So then, what? What I do? What I do is, I I I, I get ten million. Yeah. Right? I don't tell Ingrid. I don't tell <laughs> anybody. Yeah. Then I say to Ingrid, "Listen, this huge um, CBS broadcast right. have asked me to do a show in America. I'm leaving News Talk, right. and I'm going to work in America for CBS. Now this means I have to go to America for. I'm really sorry, <laughs> but like I have to go to America for about twenty and weeks of a year. She never listens to you. She never at listens. All. She never listens. Right, so that's brilliant. <laughs> yeah. And then, I spy her home. And then, <laughs> then I go out to the airport, get on board my yes. private jet, okay. zip off to America, yeah. and there you are. And what do you do when she visits? Uh, it's your, it's your holiday. It's your holiday. No, from she what? doesn't like America. Okay. She hates America. Okay. <laughs> I've got it all cracked. And because she doesn't listen to you, she hasn't a clue about your nefarious plan this evening. Uh, apparently, anonymity is not an option. I, with Euro millions. I think, I'd heard, I think there is yeah, something right. in that, that the lotto, you yeah. can do what you like, but it, it seems to be a condition of it. And is there this thing that you can only, which would seem strange, that you can only win the Euro millions if you buy it in your own country? That if I, I bought it in France, I couldn't. I see. Yeah. And Tanya still has a Blackberry down in Cork. The Right Hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander 7-seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips. MitsubishiMotors.ie A new film, The Siege of Jadoville, will be screened at a special screening at the Galway Film Flat tomorrow and the film will also premiere globally to perhaps over 81 million viewers on Netflix later this year. But it's a story about the Irish, a story of extraordinary courage of the 1961 siege of a UN battalion, an Irish one, under commander, uh, under Commandant Patrick Quinlan. Now, I'm joined by Commandant Quinlan's um, son, Leo, himself a former soldier, of course. Uh, Leo, welcome to the programme. Thank you very much, George. 
And with me in the studio here, a veteran of that battle, Tom Gunn. Tom, welcome to the programme. Thank you, Jared. Now, Leo, if I come to you first, you were a kid when this happened and your dad was the commandant. We, we, we don't have to go through the whole thing, but they were outnumbered 10 or 20 to 1. Uh, your father, they're abandoned by the UN um, and uh, they, they dig in and they repulse this. Thing. Now, people who won't remember the Congo, there were enormous uh, casualties here uh, and going on. But but your father succeeded in bringing the company through without any deaths. That's correct. That's correct. Um, they were at number 20 to 1. There was 150, maybe 153 of the Irish. There were 3,000 plus of the enemy. And the enemy, they were led by uh, Belgian and French and mercenaries uh, who when you think about it, they were veterans of the Second World War and the Korean War against Irish who had never been in battle. I, I was going to talk to Tom actually about that never being in battle in just a sec, but I want to talk about your father. Okay. It, it, your father eventually, in order to save the lives of his men, he surrendered, right? Because he was uh, completely isolated in the Congo and the UN couldn't get a relief force to him. Is it true to say that... Uh, he he was really his reputation was damaged by that act when he came home. The Irish army, indeed the Irish government, weren't exactly supportive. Would that be true? Yes, to some extent, but there, it, it's not just as simple as that. the The whole United Nations thing in the Congo is a bit of a disaster. They went out as a peacekeeping force. They ended up as a peace enforcing force, which they broke their mandate. Um, the decision to it wasn't a, a surrender per se at start, and I have the original document yeah. in my possession. It was a ceasefire, uh, and when the as Tom will remember, when the ceasefire finished. Uh, the Irish got up out of the trenches and they had joint patrols with the enemy to show everybody, hey, the battle is over. Okay. But then the Congolese broke the ceasefire. Now the Irish were up and out in the open. They suddenly found themselves as prisoners. Now, uh, yeah, Leo, um, your dad was the commandant of that force of 150 men. With me is Tom Tom Gunn, a veteran of that siege. Now, Tom, you told me before we came on air Mm. that you were 23, a slip of a lad. Yes. You'd never fired a shot in anger, I guess, had you? Never. never so what was this like? The first outburst of fire, you're scared. You're scared, obviously. And um, then you, you, your training clicks in. Yeah. What do I do? Where do I... And we knew exactly where to go into our trenches. And then you picked out targets and you settled down. But the first hour or two were... Horrific now. Now, but, I, we're talking there to Leo, Pat Quinlan, who was your commandant. Yes. Leadership in battle, presumably, yes. is crucially important, yes. is it? We all look up to our leaders. Uh, Napoleon said, there's no such thing as bad soldiers, only bad leaders. Now, he was exceptional. Now, of the, all the men that served in Jadaville, every one of them had never a bad word to say about Pat Quinlan. He was quite exceptional. He stood out when he went through the ranks and went to the lines and never shouting. Yeah, that's our about him. The, the point that um, Leo, Pat's son, made a couple of moments ago, uh, that there was this kind of ceasefire and then that ceasefire was broken by... You, but you were then imprisoned. We were taken away then to an old Hotel de Rope. It's a disused hotel on the edges of Jadaville. Now, before we went, 
uh, Common and Quinn and said, all shave, but on your Sunday best. And we went through Jadavir looking ahead and I could see only the, the, the people in the street looking at us. And we all as prim, ready to, for a, a ball, you know. Here's men that fought for five days and look how well they look and look how proud they are. And um, how long were you incarcerated then? Um, I'd say about two months. Really? Yes. Okay. We went to the dis- disused hotel in. And uh, the the UN forces eventually came in and relieved you, or whatever. No, no, we were exchanged because the, right. the UN had taken prisoners in oh. in in Elizabethville. You get me? Yeah. We were in Jadaville first, and then we were sent to Colwesi, right? It was another fifty miles away. So they brought us back to Elizabethville in old clapped-out trucks and buses to exchanges for the prisoners that the UN oh, had right. taken. And the exchange didn't come off, in fact. And we had to go back the whole way to Colwesi through the jungle and that. And about four weeks after, we were told we'd be exchanged again. So off we go to Elizabethville. Now, this time we weren't coming back. We had a plan B in action that... If we weren't being exchanged, we would take over the the, the buses and the right. trucks and drive for freedom. Okay. My job was to, I was sitting behind the driver. A man would pull the driver from behind the wheel. I would jump in and go for home. All right. Wow. Might have been even better if that happened. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, Leo Quinlan's on the phone because, of course, his dad, Commandant Pat Quinlan, yeah. was in charge of Jadabat. Leo, first of all, 50-odd years later, it's kind of easy to talk about it. And and uh, uh, did, did in front of me here, like Tom Gunn looks a very nice fella, but he was probably a fiercely tough Irish soldier at that time. And it all seems nice and simple to be talking about it. You're 16. Yes. Did you know what was going on? I mean, the, the, the family must have been terrified about their dad. Yes, of course. I was 16, the eldest in the family. Uh, the youngest, being nine years younger, who's also a retired commandant, by the way. The, the army were good to us in Athlone at the time to keep us informed as much as they were informed themselves. There was a lot of disinformation coming via BBC, etc., etc. And on the Friday in Athlone, there was a blackout, and it became known as Black Friday for that reason, also for the reason that one of the evening papers uh, had a headlines that the company were massacred, officers executed by firing squad, etc., the next morning, all the wives of the officers gathered in my mother's house and we were trying to arrange uh, how we were going to arrange funeral services without oh bodies God. and so on and so forth. But then we got the word that they were okay. I hopped on a bicycle. I used to be driving to the various housing estates in Athlone where uh, the soldiers lived and I'd be talking to them, yeah. giving them information. So eventually when Sunday morning came, we were told, yep, they're all alive, four wounded, but nobody dead. So as I went on to tell them that everybody was alive, a, a staff car, uh, my competent own Curtin, a good footballer in his day, uh, he arrived at the same time and got out of the car and there were tears streaming down his face and everybody thought the worst, but he was happy, you know, emotional. Oh, that's and amazing. he said, look, they're all alive, they're okay. It, and my God, we're dancing in the street. <laughs> it's hard to remember. Tom, um, it's 55 years ago, yes, so you, yeah. the, the, the members of that siege have to be in their middle to late 70s or whatever now. Yes. Many of you left? I was talking to John Garman yesterday. I have the role, um, and he claims that over 50 of us left. Really? 
Yes. You'll have to get together for this movie. I mean, you're now oh, really? film stars. Oh, you can just look at <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I actually think uh, that I, just as you were speaking, I was so excited about the fella hopping over, pulling the driver out of the way, That's and you fact. taking over <laughs> and driving the freedom. Leo, Leo, had you heard that story before? Uh, I, I know intimately the story my right. dad told me everything uh, yeah. Tom makes it sound very uh, nonchalant and yes, kind of matter does. of fact yeah. casual but it was very carefully thought out I remember my dad explaining yeah. Yeah. they had done unarmed combat in secret they had prepared knives they had prepared garrots yeah. and that the drivers were going to be killed pulled out of the way with a garrot in fact it was okay. very well carefully thought out. You know? All right. Well, uh, t- tomorrow we're going to see it uh, at uh, the Galway Film Fla. Thanks to my guest, veteran Tom Gunn, veteran of Jadoville, and Leo Cullen, son of Commandant Pat Quinlan, uh, who led the defence of Jadoville.